Padanza with Aidan McCaffrey. Such a fine line between stupid and, and clever. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Movie News Padanza, a movie news podcast and one of the great works of our time in any medium. Reporting to you from the UK's Lockdown 3, the Godfather Part 3 of Lockdowns. No one wanted it, and at least one of the roles has been horrendously miscast. In that film's case, the role of Mary Corleone. In the Lockdowns case, the role of UK Prime Minister. If the three lockdowns were to be a movie trilogy, you'd really want them to be the Toy Story trilogy. You know, each each lockdown would be more fun than the last. Each lockdown would enrich the universe created by the previous lockdown. And at the end, we'd all hand in our lockdown toys to a younger generation so we can get on with our lives. Or maybe we'd want our lockdown trilogy to be like the Indiana Jones trilogy. You know, the first lockdown, brilliant. Second, imaginative but lacking in heart. And the third, you know, recovers the fun of the first lockdown, and then a fourth lockdown never happened. Never happened. Name's mine. Mutt Williams. Who? As it happens, it was like Indiana Jones, except Sean Connery died before we even got to lockdown three, the last crusade. So, third lockdown, massive letdown. But hey, the vaccine is being rolled out. The US has uh, done the most, I believe. I've got the stats here. The UK smashing it out of the park. Israel smashing it out of the park. In Israel, they've got like, they've got literally like driving vaccinations. You can just go in, get the jab, drive off. That sounds fun. They should combine that with some kind of driving movie theater thing, you know. Drive in, watch Miss Congeniality 2, get the jab, go home, feel safe. Maybe throw a drive-in McDonald's into the mix. First order point. Do I get the Big Mac or the Quarter Pounder? Second order point. Do I get the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Collect your food, get your jab. Maybe the syringe could be part of the Happy Meal or something. I don't know. You know, you get a little Ronald McDonald toy and you also get a Sharp. And then you watch your film. Sorted. This is the first movie news pedanza in two weeks. I teased last week that I would be going fortnightly with this podcast instead of weekly. And I mean, as teases go, that's quite a, a poor tease. Teases should be like, guys, I've got an amazing guest coming up on the next week's episode. Now, my tease was, guys, you're going to get 50% less of this than you have been getting. But hey, judging on my podcast stats, maybe that's a blessing. Uh, we do have an amazing guest this episode. I will be interviewing the comedian and filmmaker Matthew Hyten. Matthew Hyten is a stand-up comedian uh, and he makes short films. And he's a very funny guy and he's got interesting perspective on filmmaking coming at it as he does from the comedy side. So it will be a different flavour to the interviews we've had in previous weeks. Movie news, that is why we're here. The Suicide Squad, the sequel to Suicide Squad, Search for the Missing Definite Article, stars a cast of D-list no-hopers, including Margot Robbie, Jai Courtney, Viola Davis, Joel Kinnaman, Idris Elba, John Cena, Storm Reid, Fleur Borg, Nathan Fillion, Peter Capaldi, Pete Davison, David Dastmalkian, Daniela Melchior, Steve Agee, Alice Braga, Sean Gunn, Michael Rooker, Taika Waititi, Joachim Cusio, May 
Ling Ung, Juan Diego Botto, Tinashi Kajesi, Julia Ruiz and Jennifer Holland, it's been announced that this film will be the softest of soft reboots, according to director James Gunn. There has been some speculation about to what extent this film will be a um, reset or sequel to The Suicide Squad, which took a lot of money. It was in the range of about $750 million worldwide, which is solid for um, a film based on a fairly unknown property. But it was critically mauled. And even people who saw it don't speak that highly of it. New director James Gunn replacing original film director David Ayer. And James Gunn's very much a director with his own aesthetic, his own comic sensibility. So people thought, oh, maybe this will be uh, uh, like a reboot, reset thing. And it kind of is. Because basically, Gunn got asked on Twitter, will I need to watch the first film to get the second? And he responded, one word answer, no. So there you go, soft reboot. If you don't know what a soft reboot is, a soft reboot is a reboot where you only see nipples and not genitals, whereas a hard reboot you get to see actual penetration. So, just nipples in this one. Oh, yes! 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 My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, and I will have what she's having in this life or the next. Luca Guadagnino and Timothy Chalamet, the director and star of a romantic indie drama Call Me By Your Name, uh, they're going to make a film of the film together. It's been described as a horror romance. <laughs> Sounds like my marriage. Don't laugh! This ain't reality TV! The story follows Marin Yearly on a cross-country trip as she searches for the father she's never met in an attempt to understand why she has the urge to kill and eat the people that love her. That sounds like an interesting plot. Could also be the plot of a Spider-Girl film, should they ever choose to make one. The Matrix 4 is apparently going to be called The Matrix Resurrections, uh, at least if a now-deleted post from one of the film's hairstylists is to be believed. But, you know, this makes sense. The second and third film were called The Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions, respectively. The Wachowskis like putting R words in the titles of these films. I guess it was, I guess it came down to a choice between The Matrix Resurrections and The Matrix Recliner, The Matrix Removal Vans, The Matrix Renovations, The Matrix Rim Jobs, and uh, The Matrix Relocation, Relocation, Relocations. Sounds like they made the right choice with Resurrections. Zack Snyder's four hour Justice League redo, which I've mistyped as Rustic League, which hey, I'm up for that. I'm up for a film where Superman and Batman et al. are just like farmers driving tractors around the Dust Belt of America. Could be about how they all cope with the Great Depression. Rustic League, the grapes of the wrath of Steppenwolf. Anyone? It will be premiering on HBO Max on March the 18th. No word of how it will be released worldwide. A lot of HBO stuff ends upon Sky Atlantic here in the old U of K. So I guess I'll be watching it in a shitty standard definition on Now TV then. Which I'm sure is exactly how Snyder wants me to watch it. I want my fans to watch this with half the detail on the picture missing and with a pointless sense of grievance at MCU fans for liking a superior superhero franchise. Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's the, um... Snyder Cut. That movie is four hours long. Four hours? Four hours? Four hours. Four hours. Four hours! 
Marriage Story director Noah Baumbach signed a deal to exclusively write and direct films for Netflix for the next few years. And this reeks of the old Hollywood system where stars would be contracted to studios. Now, that system always felt quite restricting for actors of the time, but I don't know, this feels like a good fit for Baumbach. You know, he, he makes small, presumably relatively inexpensive films about pretentious New York type people. God, that sounds coded, doesn't it? Pretentious New York type people. We all know who we mean. Anyway, Netflix is gonna, they had a great success together with Marriage Story, so he's gonna make some more films for them. And good, because Brombach always makes interesting films, and occasionally he makes a very good film, like Marriage Story. Interestingly, there was a similar story this week saying that Disney have entered into a five-year overall exclusive television deal with Fruitville Station and Black Panther director Ryan Coogler's Proximity Media and media's principals Zinzi Coogler, Sev Ohanian, Ludwig Goranson, Archie Davis and Peter Nix. And they're going to make a Wakanda TV show for Disney+. Plus. Now, this is a show about the closed state from the film Black Panther, sort of like an invisible country in Africa that no one's ever heard of. Like Benin. Deadline has reported that Misha Green, the writer, creator, and occasional director of HBO's Lovecraft Country, will direct the Tomb Raider sequel starring Alicia Vikander. This was meant to be written by Amy Jump and directed by her director husband, Ben Wheatley, but they've moved on to direct the Meg 2. It doesn't feel like the first Tomb Raider film starring Alicia Vikander made a big, big cultural splash, but clearly MGM thought it was profitable enough to warrant a sequel. Its budget was around $100 million, so it's on the cheaper side of blockbuster production, which would suggest that its $270 million worldwide gross may well have eked out a profit, even after factoring in print and marketing costs. I've read a story that it cost $275 million, and it grossed $274. <laughs> so it was like $1 million short. But when you're factoring, like, VOD sales and stuff, sounds like it probably made a profit. Deadline is reporting that the big screen adaptation of the hit Broadway musical Wicked will be directed by John M. Chu, who directed Crazy Rich Asians and the upcoming In the Heights, that's the other Lin-Manuel Miranda stage musical that he'd done before Hamilton. Wicked is itself based on a Gregory Maguire novel, which is kind of a Wicked Witch of the West origin story. You get to see her do her first kill in a Prague toilet in a black and white sequence at the start of the story. Nope, sorry, that's Casino Royale again. It's about her friendship with another witch called Glinda. It's pretty big. I saw it on stage. I, I personally, not that my opinion matters for anything, I, I was a bit disappointed by it. I thought it had like two good songs, which is only one more good song than Casino Royale, which is not great considering Royale isn't even a musical. But uh, who, who cares what I think? Wicked was massive on stage, so they're going to make a big-ass musical about it. I'm actually not massively au fait with The Wizard of Oz, so maybe it's uh, more for Oz fans. Yorgos Lanthimos, actor Emma Stone, and screenwriter Tony McNamara, all of whom made the Oscar-winning film The Favourite, are reteaming for Poor Things, the movie adaptation of the book by Alistair Gray. Production Weekly reported the story with this frankly epic synopsis. This is ostensibly the memoirs of late 19th century Glasgow physician Archibald McCandless. The narrative follows the bizarre life of oversexed, volatile Bella Baxter, an emancipated woman and a female Frankenstein. 
Valentine. Bella is not her real name. As Victorian Blessington, she drowned herself to escape her abusive husband, but a surgeon removed the brain from the fetus she was carrying and placed it in her skull, resuscitating her. The revived Bella has the mental age of a child. Engaged to marry McCandless, she chloroforms him and runs off with a shady lawyer who takes her on a whirlwind adventure, hopping from Alexandra to Odessa to a Parisian brothel. As her brain matures, Bella develops a social conscience, but her scheduled nuptials to Archie are cut short when she is recognised as Victoria by her lawful husband, Sir Aubrey Blessington. I mean, we like to use the phrase, there's a lot to unpack there. There's so much to unpack there. It's like the warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark levels of there's a lot to unpack here. Just boxes and boxes that stretch all the way to the horizon. What I like about this synopsis, it says, after having established that she's a female Frankenstein and has had the brain of the fetus she was carrying placed in her skull, got married, run off with a shady lawyer. It's at that point that the synopsis says she's taken on a whirlwind adventure. I mean, sounds pretty whirlwind so far. So far, it's not been a light breeze. You know, it's been... What's the level of tornado that you have in Twister? Like a, a level 5 Twister? This is a level 5 Twister of a plot here. That was a good-sized Twister. What was that, an F3? Solid F2. None of you have ever seen an F5. Just one of us. Sounds mental. I would say it sounds shit, but uh, it's Yorgos Lanthimos. He's pretty good. And he sort of likes quirk. Not quirky for the sake of it. Quirk that reveals something about the human condition. Push back. Push back. Push back. Pandemic pushback, your guide to how COVID-19 is affecting the film industry because, hey, a million people have died. But I want to know, when do I get to watch the Bob's Burgers movie? That's the, that's the pressing thing. The world's largest cinema chain... AMC Theatres has avoided bankruptcy by managing to raise $917 million in new equity and debt capital, AMC Theatres said Monday. They describe it as enough cash to make it through this dark coronavirus-impacted winter, adding that its financial runway has been extended deep into 2021. If you want to know how far that financial runway extends, think of the runway in Fast and Furious 6. Basically, a lot longer than most runways in the world. The length of Texas, east to west. That's how long that Fast and Furious 6 runway was. Anyway, it's good news for AMC. It's going to survive. Quiet Place 2, uh, which was pushed back for the first time to September 2020, then again to April 2021, has now been pushed back a third time to September the 17th, 2021, which is a sort of reasonable expectation that it will be its last because based on Dr. Fauci's estimate of when American society can return to normal after vaccinations, he was saying like fall basically is the point at which enough people will be vaccinated that things could turn to relative normalcy. So hopefully this will be the last bait of pushbacks and yeah, it means we'll get a big blockbuster franchise film like every three days, as Paul Breen was saying on last week's podcast. Paramount has been selling properties to streaming giants left, right and centre, but one property on which they have lost that streaming feeling... 
streaming feeling is Top Gun Maverick. The Wall Street Journal has reported that both Netflix and Apple have inquired as to whether the company would be willing to sell the upcoming Top Gun sequel. Feels like the streaming giants were busy buying Trial of the Chicago 7, The Lovebirds, and they tried to make a impulse buy on Top Gun Maverick while they were at the till. But Paramount had to point out, hey, there was not a sticker on Top Gun Maverick saying $2.99 when you buy the streaming rights for three of the films worth $50 million or more. Top Gun Maverick ain't for sale. It's behind the counter. It's in a glass on a case. It's in a casing glass on a shelf or something. There's glass involved, all right? You're not having Top Gun Maverick. It's being seen on a big screen or not at all. Tom Cruise did not learn how to fly in a plane and take it off an aircraft carrier so you could watch it on an iPad. See it in IMAX or not at all. Thank you, Paramount. Uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis biopic starring Tom Hanks. He's not playing Elvis, he's playing Colonel Tom Parker, because him playing Elvis would be mad. That's been pushed back to 2022. I don't know how we feel about that. Hey, it's Baz Luhrmann. Do you know what? I've got a feeling that film will be pretty big, for the basic reason that Luhrmann is an interesting director. He's not always good, <laughs> but he's always interesting. And he definitely has his own aesthetic. And he's quite good at capturing the energy of pop music phenomenons is the best way I could describe that. You see what he did with Moulin Rouge where he whacked all of the most famous songs in history into this historical musical. Elvis feels like someone as legendary as he is. And it doesn't feel like he's been in the public consciousness much recently. So I feel like this could be like a well-timed biopic in terms of, hey, we haven't talked about Elvis in a while. Let's have a big film about him. And, you know, it's Baz Luhrmann. So presumably it'll be a visual treat. I wonder how old Baz Luhrmann will do the death of Elvis. L Luhrmann likes to go big on melodrama. I wonder if uh, it'll be like the death scene in Romeo and Juliet. Candles down both sides of an impeccably well-lit church aisle, and then right at the end of the aisle, instead of a, an altar, we say a flower-adorned toilet with a jumpsuit Elvis sitting on it, pants down, burger in hand, another burger in his mouth, while a rosy-cheeked boy sings a falsetto rendition of When Doves Cry as the king breathes his last gherkin-scented breath before passing. I reckon it's that ending that attracted Tom Hanks to sign up for the film. My name is HBO Max, Miss Decimus Meridius, father to a murdered film industry. And I will stream Wonder Woman in this life or the next. What now? Nathan. Interviews. A movie. A person. Yes, this is the section Aiden interviews a movie person. This week I'm interviewing Matthew Hyten. He is a comedian and short filmmaker. He has made a short film called The Voice. It's very funny. Spoiler alert. And I have to do a spoiler alert because it's less than a thousand years old. Spoiler alert. I'm an extra in it. I'm in the corner reading Wise Guy. There's a bit where you literally can see the edge of my book and the edge of my nose. It's the most famous I've ever been. It's witty, it's got fun actors in it, some great fun up-and-coming comic talent in. Matt comes more from the live comedy world than the film world, but I felt it was worth getting his perspective on this podcast, as he's a good example of young talent using social media in a creative way to bolster his cred, both as a comedian and a filmmaker. In fact, while I was editing this episode, I noticed a news story about how someone had created the Simpsons credits seamlessly using only stock footage, and I thought, I bet that's Matt, because I know did the same thing for a Buffy video and I I was right it was Matt he did the uh, very funny Simpsons 
title sequence made only using stock footage video that's been going around in the last few weeks. Incidentally, there is a bit in this interview where I talk about a video Matt made of Trump casting magic, and I provided no context to what that is. You might just be thinking, D did Trump cast magic? Did uh, Trump get hold of an elder wand and I didn't realise? No. Trump's quite gesticular with his hands. And he made, just made a video of him like throwing spells. Spells were being thrown off his hands as he was flapping them around like a sort of, you know, orange mark commode. I do apologise. There are some digital bleeds on the Squadcast recording. I, I don't know if that's the technical audio term for what they are, but you'll you'll know them when I hear them. Digital bleed does sound like a sort of 8-bit character having a period, but uh, I only mean this in the sonic sense. Anyway, without further ado, here is the bloody interview. I am talking to Matthew Hyten, a comedian and filmmaker. Is that an apt description, Matt? I think it is. Um, in the age of COVID, you don't know how to define yourself. Because, yeah, I mean, I've not done a gig for nearly a year now. I guess comedian... Yes, filmmaker, yes, and now just content monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, uh, speaking to Matthew Hyten, bedroom dweller, because that's all we are in these here times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I've got a new office, and um, I've discovered if you've got a space that you enjoy working in, you do a lot more work. Who knew? You say that, but I there's a cupboard in my office slash spare bedroom that used to be a shower. So I've like I sort of use it as a little podcast studio. But I absolutely hate it. But because I'm a glutton for punishment, I just keep going back for more. It's Sunday afternoon. I'm going in the cupboard to hate myself for an hour. <laughs> I've done so many jobs in the last nine months where I'm like, and now's the point in the uh, record where I put the blanket over my head and sit in a little dark <laughs> spot so uh, I can record myself. Who knew that when we were children and we were making those like tent forts in the lounge, we just thought it was a bit of fun. Little did we know that was like career prep right there. <laughs> yeah. That was like our university for the podcasters that every single one of us was going to become in the future. It's going to be a nightmare if I have kids and they're like, oh, yeah, we're making a before. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm interviewing a filmmaker. <laughs> and it's really <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Matt, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? You're a, a filmmaker and comedian. Do you see yourself as more one, of, one or the other? Do you see the film in service of the comedy profile or do you see the comedy profile in service of the filmmaker? I've struggled with this for years where I often felt if I focus on one thing, maybe my career would go better. <laughs> that idea of don't be a jack of all trades, be a master of one. But I think, especially now, as all this has come around, I think everything sort of feeds into itself. So I've always enjoyed trying to be funny and making people laugh, but I've also always loved film. And the idea was always to write comedy and films and things like that. And that was the original plan when I started going into this. And I was living in Leeds and I sent a script off to a, a company, a very big one, a chance name. Um, and they gave me feedback that they really liked the script. We had meetings about it. I'd never written anything and sent it off before. And it came down to, they said, the budget for this would be just too big for us to justify an unknown. Have you ever thought about doing stand-up to sort of build a profile? And I'd been wanting to stand-up for years, but I'd sort of never had the courage to, to go for it. And then I just went, right, I'll do it. So I moved down to London, started doing the stand-up circuit with an idea of that will feed into something bigger later on. And I just fell in love with comedy and sort of looped back to doing filmmaking and stuff like that. 
And the more I got into sort of doing it, the more I fell in love with it and just thought, right, this feeds into that and that feeds into this. And I think they just sort of live simpatico a bit. No idea if I've just used that word right, but... I'll fact good. check it on the pod after you've gone. <laughs> yeah, please do, please do. Simpatico, origin Italian, definition, having or characterised by shared attributes or interests, compatible. Your way into the circuit's not massively dissimilar to mine in as far as I didn't really want to do comedy because I stand up because I found it terrifying, but I did want to be like a comedy screenwriter. And throughout my late twenties, it became really apparent to me that the only people I knew who were comedy writers or screenwriters were all stand-ups. And it was people like you probably know them, like Gronny Maguire and Tom Neenan and Nish Kumar, people like that. They'd all like become comedy writers, but through stand-up. And I found it really annoying because <laughs> I was like, I don't want to have to do stand-up, <laughs> but I had to sort of like for myself to do it and like you i ended up really liking it it's very much its own beast it's something yeah. you have to figure out independently of the writing even though they do feed back into each other it is it's a weird one first of all she hates me saying this but grony gave me my first gig and she hates me bringing that up <laughs> is that because she's ashamed of what you've become yeah, she, yeah she's she's very distanced from me now she uh, takes no responsibility <laughs> just a lovely human being and that would be my recommend if anyone's listening to just check out grony mcguire's work because it's amazing but yeah i think with the um like what you're saying about the right comedy is a weird one especially in the uk because it gives you something instantaneous which i think is hard like with writing you can spend months and months years even on a project and then it all comes down to you sending it out and waiting and ultimately getting a lot of disappointing rejection that is writing even the best writers suffer rejection whereas with stand-up you can take an idea um, that you've had at two o'clock and by eight o'clock in the evening you can test it out and you can understand what works about it and i think despite stand-up being like terrifying for a lot of people when it goes right it's such a good feeling and it does sort of hone your comedy muscles i think the thing of the uk like you're saying about a lot of comedy writers come from stand-up it's also because the circuit's not very big so, like, comedy is a very small bubble as far as the media industry goes. And the problem is there's too many people who are good at or great at it. So if you're going to be looking at something, I think, when you come from an industry side of view, it's a shame. But, like, it's easier to take a chance on someone who's proven themselves in one field already, who you know is great, compared to someone who hasn't who is also great. I think it's hard to establish yourself as a comedy writer. It's not impossible. Like, if anyone's listening, don't think you have to do stand-up. It is possible to just put the work in and become a great writer. But we're not America. We don't have the, the opportunities for progression in the same way. Like, America, they have big shows with big writers rooms and people can start in a writers room and move up and then go from there and they have a really clear progression path whereas we have a lot of amazing people doing amazing work who are vying for the same little spots which is weird because i think now we're in a really golden age of comedy but it's it's a hard one to see because now we have obviously things like twitch and youtube and everything that are and more established than when they started sort of 10 years ago, however long YouTube did. Now you've got a lot of people who can make things that look very good production-wise and just put them out. So now, if anything, we've got a lot of great stuff, but it's amongst a load of awful stuff. So it's a really weird industry to be in because we're all still chasing that idea of if you can get something, say, on something like Netflix that can rocket you to, you know, the big time and your name becomes trusted, then you get bigger projects and stuff. We're still starting, like chasing that. But also we have all the tools in our pocket to go, well, I can make this 
and I can keep making this. And if people like it and come to me, then maybe I can get that. The problem I think with on-screen stuff is <laughs> it's collaborative. And at the moment it's hard to collaborate given we're in a pandemic. Yeah. I think the good thing about starting out is a lot of the time you're starting out with a lot of other people. That's why live comedy is good. You go on the open mic, you meet a lot of people who want to do the same thing as you. And as you go, people progress or they drop away. But you've got sort of the same hunger. So you will, if you were to make a little stupid sketch, you know people and you go, do you want to be in the sketch? And you have people on hand to make that. I think if you're starting in writing, it's, it's kind of a bit more solitary and you have to reach out in a different way. So that's why I think live comedy is good if you want to get into comedy as a, a whole. Because you see it all the time where a lot of comedians who love live work end up stopping doing it because it gets to a point where it is exhausting and you're out night after night and stand-up comes with a lot of nerves. Whether you're seasoned or not, there's a lot of stuff that chemically goes on in you before you go on stage, all the adrenaline building, the anxiety, whatever it is with you. And everyone deals with it in different ways. And I've always sort of, I talk my way around bad feelings. I try and block it out. So I'm quite loud before a gig. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it's probably very irritating for other acts who are quite insular. But I, I sort of block out those feelings quite well um, and then get on stage and then, then they hit me. Whereas I remember I have friends, um, there's a very good comedian who doesn't, do stand-up anymore called Mark Stevenson and he used to be very honest about um he used to make him feel physically sick before he'd go on wow. it's one of the best comedians yeah but he said he just hated the feeling before it and and that's the the hard sort of life stuff you've got so many unknowns that sort of tap into sort of very sort of you know ingrained evolutionary responses to us that are not positive like you get all flight ill fight and all that going on and it is a weird thing but when you're on stage, the feeling of getting a big laugh is so addictive. And I think that's the interesting thing about when you do stuff on screen and things like that. Essentially, you're trying to elicit something that you've felt. Like comedy for me, I think I'm always writing for the version of me who's in their late teens, early 20s. I think I always want to give someone else something that I felt when I discovered so many comedies that I think informed my personality in the long run. I think you're always chasing that. When you're live, you're always chasing a laugh that you can feel physically. But I think when you're making something for screen, you're chasing, trying to give someone something else. I think it's interesting that the two are sort of very similar, but sort of almost separate. You were talking about the sense of community you get from stand-up and being able to utilize people in that community for an idea you've had, which is how we know each other, actually, because... We have a mutual friend on the scene, Jos Norris, and he put a call out for people to be extras in a short film that you were making. And I came along and was in that short film. And it really was felt like a community effort because not only was it cast with other comedian and actor people, but it was filmed in the Bill Murray pub, which is like a sort of epicenter of both up and coming and established comedy in London. That film was called The Voice, I believe. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so that is uh, the perfect example for me of that sort of collaboration. So Jos Norris and I have worked together on many things and we work together a lot because we just like getting stuff done. We've both got different skills um, and so it was just very natural that we would work together and obviously we're close friends so it helps the collaboration. But there's also John Britton on that film who wrote it. Uh, we're talking about writing before and John Britton is an incredible writer to the point where he has definitely has one Olivier. I think he might have two now. Definitely had a, a few nominations. He's just got a very good mind and eye for comedy. So for example, he um, directed John Kearns's award-winning shows and stuff like that. And he's also very, very, and this has to be said because he's got so many accolades. This always gets overlooked. He's a very good 
comedy performer as well. Very funny man. We were all talking about doing something together and John had had this idea that came from real life experience where someone he had met was the voice of Siri, um, if I'm if I'm remembering that right. I don't know if he wants people to know this, so I'll rephrase this because we don't <laughs> have to keep that out. But basically, yeah, he had this idea about the person who is the voice of Siri and how such a very recognized voice and such a big role would be quite overlooked. And so, yeah, he just had this idea about how the actor would deal with that and his sort of view on it. And it turns out Jaws does a very good Siri impression. So we started chatting about the idea and then John just gave us the script. It takes a lot now. I read so much comedy, but if I actually laugh out loud when reading, I know that that's going to make me laugh on screen because quite often in comedy, you get something, you go, ha, or you go, ah. Uh, <laughs> but with that, I was just laughing all the way through. And then we sort of chatted and Jaws did his voice and it just all worked. So it was sort of the perfect wheel for us. Jaws was going to front the performance. John was holding up the writing and making it a slick script. And then all I had to do was concentrate on the filmmaking side of it. And we just said, right, let's just go for it and see without putting a budget into it can we make this a nice film and it came out really well we're all very very happy with it and yeah we just got um Roisin and Kiara was in it um Tom Tuck was in it Sam Nicaresti who again very similar to me he does comedy and he's very not not similar to me he's there he's a very funny man <laughs> and uh I was, trying, I was trying to make that not sound like I was going it was very similar to me a very funny man <laughs> very funny man um but also he's got he's incredible at filmmaking and graphics so he came in and he helped shoot it and the thing with that was it was just a very fun project to do and it just had all the right elements to it for us and we were going to put it to the festivals but covid hit when we went to release it and we decided just to put it online as a thing just just put it out and let people see it instead of us trying to run festivals but what i was trying to say about the collaboration was uh basically yeah it's just what you realize is Everyone wants to do these sorts of things, but it's rarely something you can do on your own. So like the people we got in it, very talented comedians, they obviously, they want to be in stuff. So you do get, for a while in your career, you get a lot of favors where people will do things for free. If you can avoid it doing things for free, it's always better. But now and then people will do something because one, they want it for their own show reels. They want to, you know, improve their acting skills and things like that. But also you've just got a lot of very talented people who are just willing to do stuff. And I think if you can get in a circuit like that, you're already ahead of the game. There's a really good community of comedy filmmakers um, that had a lot of nights going on. Uh, the two that jumped to mind straight away because I know them best is Rachel Stubbins and Ben Malaby. Check out the work. It's incredible. But again, Rachel used to do a lot of live comedy, but moved more towards filmmaking. Ben's just always done a lot of filmmaking. And again, you'll see a lot, in comedy in the UK, you'll see a lot of the same people cropping up in different projects because they want to do it. They want to get better at it. And they know that maybe one project is the thing that's going to make them go big. So you have this incredible wealth of stuff that will never hit TV, but quite often is is a lot better than stuff you might see on TV because they don't have the restrictions of, we need this to fit a certain thing. We need this to be a certain way. We need this to be a certain time, which is interesting now we're getting things like Netflix because all that standardization we've had years of, like you need to be 22 minutes, 25 minutes. You can't be a five minute thing or a 15 minute things. So they're just like, let it run to what it runs. And I think it's interesting now that you're going to get a sort of new era of comedy coming through where everyone like if you've got a phone in your pocket a new phone you've already got better equipment than people had 10 years ago but you've got a better camera than you could get 10 years ago and it's just a case of now seeing what rises up because 
it's so hard. Like I said before, there's so many talented people, like so many. It's very rare that someone is suddenly so much better than everyone else because even the people just behind them are still incredibly good. You seem to do quite well on, on social media. You do things that intermittently go viral and stuff. Twitter sort of, and the internet uh, in general, is sort of like a, an accelerated version of career progression. When something goes big, like I say, I've had a few things pop, but you can usually tell within the first hour if it's going to go or not. And once it goes, it snowballs. Like, it absolutely, and it's crazy. And it's, again, the dopamine is insanely, like, delicious. Mate, I can only imagine. <laughs> if I get 10 likes, I'm like, here we go. <laughs> and then nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. It's really bad. I, I, I don't mind putting the uh, the shame of this out. And from the inside, it's really exciting. But, like, if as soon as I tell my wife how I'm feeling or a friend because something's going viral, it suddenly feels like the most pathetic thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> like, getting get excited because people like us a bit and sharing it. It's Especially great... something, I don't mean to d- detriment your work here, but, like... I sort of have this image of you now talking to your wife going, oh, yeah, it's, it's got viral, everyone likes my stuff. And, the, and she's like, what is it? And it's like, oh, it's just a video of Trump casting some magic. <laughs> yeah, that's almost exactly what it is. And as soon as you say it out loud, you're like, oh, I am a worm. <laughs> it's horrible. That's what, like, Twitter and TikTok and all that stuff's for. I kind of like the fact that it celebrates whimsical, silly ideas. There is room for just saying hey, isn't it funny that Trump's casting magic? And and yeah, that's sort of silly and thing, but that's valid because you sometimes need a little thing like that to perk up your day or whatever. I have a routine now with videos that I make. So I have like tiers of projects. There's stuff that I think is going to be a big project and it's going to take time, like The Voice was, where it's planning and it's collaboration. But now, because um, I make a lot of silly little videos, I sit down on a Monday and I write down all the ideas I've got and then I look at them and go, is there anything I want to make this week and if i want to make it i start making it like this week i made super mario's the shining took me three days but also at the side of that i'm watching the news and if there's something that comes up they think i can do something i think of it like as junk food comedy junk food if i can do something that's really sort of in the now like the bernie sanders meme which if you listen to this we're, we're that was just something that you knew was going to exist for about three days so you just go, right, I'll, I'll spend an hour now and I'll make something quick, reactive, and just put it out. And it's the same as when you do stand-up, looking through the papers or the news and then talking about it on the night. You know it's only going to exist for a few days. It's not going to be one of your big projects, but it chucks it out. And I got really routined, especially in the pandemic, because my wife's working from home and she's like properly working she's on her desk at nine she sometimes doesn't finish till nine she's busy all the time i thought the worst thing that could be is if i'm sat downstairs playing spider-man while she's working so it's like right you from monday to friday you're making videos like if you're not getting paid to make a video of someone which is a lot of my income now comedy's dried up then you're making something to pay out for yourself and so I discipline, I just sit there and i write down all my ideas and i start making something and the goal is always if this doesn't do well, which increases, you know, my fan base, essentially, which then snowballs into more, then at least I learn something and I learn a new process. I found that really helpful because it's made me understand lots of bits of filmmaking and editing and stuff that I never, ever had an idea of. Like, I'm quite good at editing now because I've just been doing it so much and, like, making motion stuff or whatever. Good thing about sort of treating hobbyist things, like, when stand-up was taken away from me, I was like, I still like being silly, I still like being funny. And I sort of went, you've got these skills, try and use them in your way. And what you're talking about before about 
there's a big market for silly. I think there's Ben Target, who's a, again an exceptional comedian. He once said to me, um, and this changed my thinking for everything. The thing you have to remember: there's room in the world for everything. It's just not everything makes it big. But there's no reason why you have to do things a certain way. There is a market for everything. And when I started doing videos and comedy, like I said earlier, I always thought I want to make stuff that would make me laugh. Because if it makes me laugh, I know there's other people that make me laugh. I think that's what you've always got to do. You've got to bring the things that you have and put them into sort of the mediums you can create. It's why filmmakers have a style. It's why comedians have a style. It's not to say it won't change over the years or evolve, but it's why everyone has something that they can bring to the table. And going back to that sort of like idea of things going big, say you have a video... So you're not doing a big film. You're not putting it through festivals or anything like that. Say you just got a video that's gone viral. If you tweeted that 10 minutes earlier, it might not have happened because the person who shared it, who then shared it, who then shared it, and then someone massive saw it and shared it, and then everyone shared it. You'd sort of got a window that is of unpredictability where you don't know who's going to see it. I think that was the thing that always kept me making videos and putting stuff out that didn't always do well was you don't know who's looking at your stuff. So if you keep putting out what you think is decent stuff, like consistently okay to good to great stuff, often poor, <laughs> <laughs> like you, you don't know who's watching and who's going, oh, they've done this again, they've done this again. And you don't know who's then going to like reach out to you from the back of it. Because I've got a lot of work coming in from people who have just seen me putting out dumb stuff that essentially could have just, you know, disappeared. But because you keep doing it, you have to remember that people are watching and people then might, yeah, share it and then someone else might see it. I think that is the thing where you're doing comedy or filmmaking or anything creative. The hardest challenge is to sort of keep doing it when you don't understand why you're doing it because you don't understand like if you're going to make it or you know if there's a, a place for you in this big horribly you know destructive industry that can <laughs> churn people up but if you're sort of doing it for yourself like if you're an actor and you're just doing it because you want to get better at acting even if you your eye is on hollywood or whatever i think that's the hard part to push through just keep doing it and keep getting better and eventually you don't know what's going to take off but if you can sort of hold on to that idea of i'm doing this because i love doing this i think you're never sort of in a bad way you might be poor and starving but you're not in a bad way have you seen the film comedian the one where it's like jerry seinfeld and some other comedian on the way up have you seen that i've never i've never watched it i um i had it someone gave it me on a dvd but it was the wrong region <laughs> it's very fascinating it, i mean it's more it's actually less fascinating for seinfeld i mean he's quite interesting but it's the other comedian who's on the up whose name again will come back <laughs> to me at some point it's a bit when he's talking to seinfeld and he says i'm struggling and i sometimes see that all my mates they're buying houses and they've got all these jobs as wall street bankers or whatever and they're starting these lives and i just ha have doubts seinfeld just says something like yeah, what else are you going to do with your time yeah and i always think about it because whenever i have doubts i just think well, what are you going to do I know what I'll do. I'll just watch more films, which would be fun. But I just think it's worth it to watch a few less films a week to maybe have a shot at something and to do something that is, for all the anxiety that it brings, is really enjoyable. Exactly. I mean, that, again, is, is the thing. It's, it's horrible because it's definitely easier when you're younger because you've got the energy for it. One thing that uh, lockdown's exposed in me is because social media is now all we have, at least right now while we're in lockdown, it has made me a little bit, like, jealous uh, of, like, oh, God, how, how the hell's that guy got, like, 50,000 followers I've got 100,000 likes on that thing it's really unhealthy but I don't know it's kind of how the world has gone in creative industries it's horrible but 
unfortunately, like we're now at a point where that counts when you're in meetings for writing and stuff like that, going back to the writing thing. Like if you're two unknown people and you've got projects that are equally good and then people go, oh, we don't know which one to pick and they look online and there's someone with six followers and someone with 60,000 followers, they're going to instantly go, well, this person has a market of people there who will want to consume this when we put it out. And it's a horrible thing. It's why influencers have done well and stuff over advertising now, because we know that everything is designing money. That's why I'm really like doing stuff on the internet, because it's not got this corporate machine behind it. As much as I would love a corporate machine to fund a project and give me something bigger, like you don't have that pressure of money on it where they're like, we love this, but if this fails, all of us have to justify that failing. So I think like that's the other thing. If you've got people who really, really are hungry for the things you put out, then of course, like a company, like a production company or you know a distribution company, are going to go, yeah, we'll rather work with you than someone who's unknown. I think that is a model that exists more and more now. Talent will always, always win out if the right people support it like there's a lot of comedians who are so incredible and they don't touch socials it's not their medium they're born for a, a live audience and that's what they want and then they adapt what they do to that i think the main thing is finding out what you love and what you're good at and just finding the way to make it work for you i, I talking about models at work I don't think you need to pay attention to that because models only work because people have made them work there's nothing to say that you can't come in with the thing that you're good at and make it work for you in your way. Like everyone's always chasing the thing that's always been big. Like I've been in so many production meetings where you can watch the progression of what's done well because you take something to a company and then they go, oh, we're actually looking for the new flea bag. <laughs> and then flea bag's gone and you go in the next year and they go, we're actually looking for the new Dairy Girls. <laughs> but they didn't know they were looking for Dairy Girls when they were looking for the new flea bag. It's, it's a knock on it. Like if you've got something, just find a way that you can get it out there and hopefully people will respond to it and, and find you from it that can relate to hollywood as well no one knew star wars was going to be big no one had made a film like star wars in 40 well no one had made a film like star wars ever but all of its chief influences like all those 1930s flash gordon serials they've been done in decades and it's just about trusting someone who has a vision and then seeing if it can follow through exactly we've talked a lot about comedy just to bring it back to film yeah your house is on fire you go in and rescue one blu-ray or dvd why didn't you save your family? I mean, I, I probably wouldn't um, save Blu-rays and DVDs because I've downsized them. I would probably save the film prints that I have in my office of Jaws and Akira and Blade Runner because I love them. If I had to save one film, uh, always Jaws. That was the answer last week as well. The perfect film. What I'll do is I'll change this to Aiden interviews a fan of the film Jaws every week. <laughs> well, I interview a different person who loves Jaws. Oh, I like you, you save one frame. Is that because you think that's the only framework for owning from Jaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. Everyone always says Jaws is all about that middle point five seconds. There's, there's just there's one one tiny tiny shot where Roy Scheider just there's a glint in his eye and it's just it's just beautiful. <laughs> it is perfect though. It's magic. Talk all you want about other films, but Jaws is the perfect film and it gave us the summer blockbuster. And I don't think there's been a film that's had so much impact on how mainstream films are made. The stories about Jaws that are just insane. Like, he knew they had to blow the shark up and the screenwriter was like, are you insane? Well, you can't blow a shark up. That's ridiculous. But Spielberg was like, no, we, if, if the audience have been hanging on for two hours... 
they want to see it blow up, trust me. And he's so right. Like, there's no other way you can end that than just watching those guts fly 30 feet into the air. With a good film, you could put the characters in it in a different situation. Like, if you took Roy Scheider's character and put them in, I don't know, Jurassic Park, I could tell you how they would respond to that situation because they feel very lived in. I'd love to see the Jurassic Park version of that that you've just described where Quint talks about how he crashed a plane into a jungle <laughs> and then the, the raptors were all like around it. You see this bite there? That's a raptor bite right there on my stomach. <laughs> yeah, uh, that'd be amazing. 700 men went into Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you're moving house. You've mm-hmm. got all of your possessions are in the moving van, but then your house catches fire. Which Blu-ray or DVD do you take back into the house to watch <laughs> Oh, that is a good question. I know the answer um, straight away. It's Man of Steel or Prometheus. I'd probably put both of them in. Prometheus and Man of Steel. Oh, it made, they made me really sad. You actually own those films as well. No, but I would, if I had time, I'd go and buy them and then come back and put them in. <laughs> Prometheus really upset me. I've never walked out of a film. I've never quit a film midway through. I think you owe it to the 300 plus people who made a film to watch what they did. No one goes out like to make a bad film. You, you owe it to the 300 people to finish the 300 is what you're trying to say yeah 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 yeah. but uh, put it in double time so you can see it at normal speed instead of all the slow-mo so much different <laughs> yeah. film, quite often I watch a film and I'm like oh I get that. But I, I won't go and... Sp- unless I really hate it, I won't sp- spout about it because I think it's so hard to make something. You go in with the best intentions, but you have no idea how it's going to come out. And there's been so many points in an edit on the smallest, like like a, like a short film, which doesn't have all the pressure, doesn't have all the time constraints, doesn't have the massive amounts of people, where you're still like, oh, God, why did I miss that? Why did I do that? To put that onto a scale of something as big as a, a blockbuster film, it must be... A nightmare, like trying to keep your mind on everything. But also with something like Prometheus, for example, just just read your script back and realize that someone said something in the first scene that never relates to them again or make them, again, lived in characters. That's why Aliens are so much better than Prometheus. Everyone in Aliens, you feel like they've known each other for forever and Ripley's walking into it and she has to then discover who they are. You could take all the characters from Aliens and put them in Jurassic Park. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Jurassic Park with the Colonial Marines would be an incredible film. Luck and load. It'd be a five-minute film with aliens in Jaws. Hopefully that's where Trevor is going with Jurassic World 3 or Jurassic Park 6 or whatever the next one's called. Did you see that there was, again, I've not quantified if this is an actual thing, but before they had Jurassic World, and there are hints of this in it, they had character art, please Google this if you're listening, of they wanted to make it where they'd amalgamated the dinosaur DNA with human DNA and made these dinosaur soldiers. Oh, the concept art. Like, I wouldn't want it to be a Jurassic Park continuation because it just wouldn't work in that world. But yeah, I'd watch that film. (laughs) Absolutely watch that film. I would encourage all my listeners to go online and look for the voice, uh, the short film that Matthew has made. Not least because I'm in it. You can see the corner of my nose in a couple of shots reading a book. You Uh, made that frame perfect. I did, exactly. It is very funny. It's genuinely great. The writing's tight. Uh, Josh Norris is an amazing performer. He genuinely does have an absolutely exceptional Siri impression. And and there's there's some nice little comic twists in it. And definitely follow Matt on Twitter because as well as getting to see the great short films that he makes, there's just lots of short form content on there. We've talked already about some of it. Is your Twitter Avatar. Just at Matt Hyten. It's very simple. At Matt Hyten. 
Excellent. I'll try and whack that in the show notes so people can go to that. Uh, is there anything else you want to promote or give a quick shout out to while you're here, Matt? No, just like you said, um, I'm always putting silly stuff up that's quick. I try and put new stuff up every week. Other than that, just, you know, reach out to a loved one. Say, say something <laughs> nice. Uh, spread the love. Uh, all that stuff. We are optimists on this podcast, so uh, I very much feel like that's a very good way to end it. Matthew Hyten, thank you very much for coming on the Movie News Pedanza, and uh, hopefully we, we will chat again in future. Thanks for having me. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. Seems to me that COVID-19 is everywhere. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that coronavirus actually is all around. I will put a link to Matt's Twitter handle and I'll try and put links to some of his uh, best videos. I'll whack that in the old show notes. Apologies for the delay in getting this week's episode out. The interview with Matt took kin ages, that's apostrophe K-I-N, ages to edit. On the plus side, you will get two episodes this week, this one today, and I'll drop a special TV news pedanza on Thursday or Friday. Uh, There's a callback in the interview to a bit in the TV news section, which I've now cut from this episode to release next week. It's the bit where I say I need to do a spoiler warning because Matt's film is less than 1,000 years old. Basically, that joke makes no sense, but... Hey, in four days' time, when you've heard episode 24, you're going to be like, God damn it, that joke I heard four days ago was absolutely incredible. It was a wonderful callback. Well done, Aiden. You'll notice I didn't report on the Golden Globes, and after literally seconds of soul-searching, I decided not to mention it because I don't like the way award shows drive so much of the Hollywood discussion. Whenever my favourite podcasts report on the Golden Globes, they often go, ah, the Golden Globes are a joke. They're always a joke. They just want to hang out with celebrities. Nevertheless, let's spend 45 minutes discussing who they nominated. And I often think that award shows derive their power from the fact that they do have so much media attention lavished on them. So basically, I'm not going to talk about the Globes. I'm not going to tell you who they nominated. If you really want to find out, go and Google it. I might discuss the Oscars when that comes around. That's only because the only utility of award ceremonies, in my opinion, is that they often shower attention and a media spotlight on smaller independent releases. And the Oscars, more than any other, other award show, can change the box office fortunes of smaller releases. And, you know, while some big films often, you know, don't necessarily need the awards attention, but win anyway, films like Titanic, Gone with the Wind, Ben-Hur, films that have already taken hundreds of million dollars in box office. There's also films win like uh, Slumdog Millionaire and Moonlight and Spotlight. Talking about spotlights, whatever you think of the quality of these films, it's good that um, smaller films have the spotlight cast on them in that way. So I might talk about the Oscars in a couple of months. I'm not talking about the Golden Globes. Fuck you, Golden Globes. Unless you've got Gervais being rude, I'm not interested. And that's it for episode 24 of the Movie News Pedanza. I released it on Anchor. You know that. I say it every week. Why? Because it's the bloody top dog of the podcasting release world. Music was by Six Umbrellas. I used their tracks Temples and Acid House. I used Montplacer's song Garage. That's the one you're hearing right now. I used Philip Saro's rendition of Back Air on the G. It's a lovely tinkery piano music you heard earlier on. ES Wicked t-shirts and sweats. And you heard the voice of Scott Joseph. Shit, I've just realised. This credits is way out of date. I've been saying these credits for like months now. I'm actually using a lot more music than that. It's a professional organisation here, folks. What other music have I used? Uh, I've actually got the... uh, Got it open. 
Basically, I used a bunch of classical stuff. I can't remember what it's called. I used a sample of Franz Liszt's Love Dream from Liebenstrom, such as my lack of knowledge on classical music. I don't even know what that means. Is that like a concerto Liebenstrom? Is that like a series? Is that like an interconnected franchise of classical pieces called Liebenstrom Musical Universe, of which Love Dream was one? I don't know. I'm a, I'm a philistine. I don't like old things. I like new things. Although, to be fair to me, I do like new things, but I do count new as anything from, like, 1937 onwards. So I'm, I'm fairly broad in my definition of new. I used a Shostakovich's Piano Concerto Number no. 2 on Dante. What a banger that was, we heard that earlier. Ah, it's, it's all light, it's out of license anyway, so it's, it's fine that I don't tell you what I used. Guys, it's been a lovely ride. We hope you enjoyed the interview. I'll be back in the future, which leaves me with one thing to say. With great power comes greatness! Thank you, goodbye. Keep absolutely still. Suspicion's based on movement. Let's rock! Yeah. Think I'll have that on the tour? So, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out. Velociraptors. Took the rest June the 29th, 1945.